0: The Fanboy Episode 114 Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 114 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, It is a rain, cold, ugly, wet, freezing, gloomy, perfect for a horror film kind of day here in New York. So I'm currently tucked away in my garage. I just took my kids to school. I just got them all dressed up for their... Right now, they're on that limited schedule that happens thanks to this lovely pandemic. But today, they happen to go in, and they're allowed to wear costumes because tomorrow is Halloween. So I had some fun with them this morning. I turned my daughter... Get this. My daughter saw Hamilton. Well, we all saw Hamilton this summer when it came to Disney+. And we've been obsessed with it pretty much ever since. My kids put on that soundtrack every day. My six-year-old son does at least three playthroughs of the Hamilton soundtrack a week in his own room with his Alexa playing, and I hear his little six-year-old pipes trying to belt out the songs. I mean, Hamilton's been kind of a uh, sensation here at the Robles house. So my daughter who loves Hamilton. For those of you familiar with the show, you might assume, okay, if she wants to be a Halloween character from Hamilton, then she's probably going to be like Eliza or Angelica or something along those lines. My daughter is dressed up as King George. Uh, That's right. King George with the white aristocrat wig and the red robes and the crown and a scepter and everything. It's She's uh, she's such a unique, unique little kid. I'm obsessed with my daughter, Talia. Um, and my son, it's funny because he has a costume that he's going to use for Halloween, which is this Mario that looks like yeah, the Super Mario, I should say, that looks like he's riding a Yoshi because my son has gone like head first into the whole realm of Nintendo in the last year or so. He just loves it. So that's his Halloween costume. And I thought he'd want to wear that today. But as it turns out, he wanted to reprise the character he played at my wife's Halloween costume party last week. Because we did a joint family thing. You know, it was, it was the four of us, plus our friend David, who is like the perfect Uncle Fester. And we had a whole Adams Family theme for the Robles family last week. So my son is currently at school. Wearing a mask, of course, you know, his his uh, his cloth COVID cover, but he's dressed up as Pugsley Adams. My little six year old boy is dressed up as Pugsley Adams. Uh, That just cracks me up. You know, it's there's something to be said for what happened during my hiatus from doing this show, during my hiatus from doing Revenge of the Fans and and kind of like pouring all of my fanboy energy out into the public because this pandemic forced me, not it forced me, but our way to get through the pandemic and the quarantine was to basically use entertainment for its greatest form, you know, for its greatest use, which is to escape, to take us away from our troubles for a little while. And what happened during the quarantine? Was that, listen, I don't know if you know this, but I live in Queens and we're about 15 minutes from Elmhurst Hospital, which was basically like ground zero here in New York City. I don't, I forget the stats, but Elmhurst Hospital, the emergency room there was, you know, it, it became such a story that eventually people kicked in money and the hospital is going to send their entire staff on these all expense paid trips to thank them for what they did in April, for enduring the insanity. And listen, if you're one of those people who was fortunate enough to not live near a hotspot and who primarily experienced this pandemic as, you know, something on the news or something you read about on social media, but it didn't really, you know, approach you in any real way, please consider yourself incredibly lucky. Because we live right here in Queens, and in April, during like the the worst part of this whole thing, there was not a time of day where there wasn't an ambulance siren in the air. It got to the point where like I would just, it became white noise. I would like block it out, but my wife would point it out. And literally any time of day, whether it's seven in the morning or 10 o'clock at night, If you close your eyes and extend your ear out a little bit, you'd hear the faint sounds of an ambulance racing its way probably to Elmhurst Hospital. And you'd say a little prayer for the New Yorker who's currently on their way to a place where you're hearing on the news that there aren't enough ventilators and that the death rate is, you know, I don't want to, you know, get too heavy on you here. But it was a very scary period here in New York City for a while, especially for the entire month of April. And it even got, it came, it hit close to home. You know, my mother-in-law, my kid's grandma got COVID. And thankfully, you know, she's a tough broad and she got through it. But, you know, grandma got COVID. Our next door neighbor, I mean, I don't want to, you know, uh, but just it affected the house directly beside ours. There was a there was a gentleman who I've known for years, Pete, who I'd see him every day outside raking the leaves, working on his garden, doing his thing. Pete's gone now you know it's it's it was a it was a very tough time here for us new yorkers i mean for everyone around the world but you know new york was basically like the epicenter here in the united states for a while and i was right near the epicenter of the epicenter in elmhurst which is the town where i first lived by the way so i have very warm memories of elmhurst that's the first place i ever lived but It was a damn near the scariest, most stressful place you could be in the month of April. But what we did here in Casa Robles, and which I really kind of spearheaded, and it was actually helped by the fact that prior to the pandemic, my wife, who's also, aside from being a special ed teacher in the Bronx, is also an actress on her, you know, on her private time. You know, she, she booked a musical and she was doing this production of nonsense and she needed to be rehearsing a lot. So through January and February, me and the kids had a lot of time home alone while mommy was out rehearsing two or three nights a week. And during those two or three nights, I kind of established a flow with them, you know, because again, now that I wasn't pouring all my fanboy energy out into the public, I kind of wanted to use it to bond with my kids a little bit. So during those months when mommy was away, Daddy curated a lot of fun nights of entertainment. That's where I began the movie night tradition where we would turn off all the lights and I'd make the popcorn and we would literally treat it like we're at the theaters. That's when I introduced them to professional wrestling, which is like one of my very first fanboy loves and which has come back in a big way in the last year or two. Um, I got into this, you know, they, they, they had expressed a little bit of interest And I managed to turn that little bit of interest into creating two full-blown wrestling fanatics over these last few months by doing little things like literally like curating little playlists. Like tonight, tonight's agenda is to walk you through the arc of Hulk Hogan's career. So we're gonna start at WrestleMania. I mean, I wouldn't tell them this, but in my mind, I would basically work out this whole thing. Like, yeah, hey, we're gonna start at WrestleMania 3. We're gonna establish him as the big heroic hero who takes down the you know, the giant and all the big crazy villains. But then now we're gonna to skip to Bash at the Beach 96, and we're gonna show you his shocking heel turn. And now that he's a heel, we're gonna show you the night that Goldberg defeated him for the world title and the Georgia Dome went insane because Goldberg, the unstoppable beast, vanquished the now evil villainous Hollywood Hogan. And not only did I do that to kind of show the Hogan arc and a couple of the most historic moments in professional wrestling, I'm sorry, I'm boring some of you with this. I'll get through it in just a moment. But the part I would, you know, the, the reason I would show that Hogan arc too and include the Goldberg bit was because Goldberg is still present in contemporary wrestling. Twenty years later, 20 something years later, Goldberg is still on WWE TV on occasion and he's treated like a special, you know, attraction. So part of my plan here was like if I teach them the history of these characters, it'll get them to invest right away in the new ver- in, in the current product. And it was pretty cool because after I did that Hogan night, And I showed Goldberg beating him for the title. Then the next day I showed Goldberg fighting The Fiend in present day. And to them it was like, oh my God, you know, Goldberg. You know, so there were lots of nights like that where I would give them little, like, entertainment history lessons through wrestling or even, like, as I'm trying to get them into the Batman mythology. I told you guys this several months ago that I was using Batman the Animated Series as a way to teach them the, the pillars of the Batman mythos. And that really worked, like, you know, amazingly. And, you know, I really leaned into bringing all of this fanboy passion home and using it to sort of explain to I, I don't just put these things on and then just hope they'll be amused by them you know I give them like a history I give them you know in a fun sort of way I give them the context for what they're going to watch and the things they should look out for and then when it's over I'd ask questions like you know what was it about Two-Face that made what happened to him so tragic you know, because we let's say like at the end of watching the, the, the two part two face origin from Batman, the animated series, and we would have these interesting discussions about the story and, and, you know, and what was interesting and what was sad and what was cool and what was your favorite part of it? Is there anything you didn't understand? You know, and it was really kind of like amazing. Because my kids never got bogged down by this pandemic, because once it arrived, we were already like a well-oiled fanboy and fangirl and geek machine, I should say. So for the months that we basically couldn't leave the house because everything around us was chaos, we just literally closed the shades, locked the doors and turned our living room into like entertainment central and like escape central. And to me, like it was very gratifying because I've always said, you know, while we may all obsess about this stuff and go on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and you know, and and fight and and heckle each other over our opinions over entertainment or you know what could have been better about this movie or what was a blown chance or what was the greatest ever and what was the worst ever, you know, while we love to do all that, at the end of the day, we're overcomplicating something quite simple. Entertainment is an escape, and it's arguably the greatest escape because you don't have to go anywhere or do anything. The best entertainment basically just ignites your own imagination and lifts you up from your couch in your living room to a whole other adventure. And now you're following these other characters on their interesting stories, you're visualizing, you're seeing incredible spectacle, you're hearing wonderful music. That was a cool thing, too. My daughter has taken after me where she actually cares about the creatives who are working on these movies. So, like, I've been teaching her, like, you know, what about directors and about composers. So now my nine-year-old daughter can talk to you about John Williams and can recognize when something sounds very Williams-like. And, by the way, she had the most amazing summer in that regard because, coincidentally, I mean, Williams was basically the soundtrack to our summer. Because first we did a Harry Potter marathon where every Friday we went through each Harry Potter movie. Then, as I told you, we had our Summer of Superman, which also had more John Williams music. And then we even, wait, what was the other Williams piece that we watched? Um, Oh, I'm blanking out now. This does not make for good radio or good television. But let me... For those of you watching on YouTube, by the way, I hope you're enjoying the little uh, visual things I throw in every now and again and the little sound cues. I really try to make the YouTube show kind of its own thing, so to speak. So for those of you who are enjoying this as an audio show, right now I'm very confused, trying to remember what the other freaking John Williams thing was that they watched. But the point is... My daughter now, I mean, first of all, they know about Jaws because I love to hum that when we're in the pool. And I go, and I pretend to be a shark and they swim away for me and it's a lot of fun. But I just love that my nine-year-old daughter, can talk to you about John Williams. She knows who George Lucas is and Steven Spielberg. And, you know, she, she can actually talk to you about the creative forces behind these spectacles that, you know, that, that she's enjoying. You know, I'm teaching her to enjoy entertainment in a way similar to th- that I do, where, like, yeah, I enjoy it for what it is at face value, but I also kind of always have this thing where I want to know who made this? Why did they make this? Did they make other things? Are there similar themes in their work? All that sort of stuff. And my daughter seems to have inherited that. And uh, it's pretty neat. But, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to hit on that because that is something that was a positive about my long hiatus away from all of this, because it allowed me to really kind of invest in bringing all of that energy and attention to detail and passion to my kids. And now my kids, you know, they got through one of the scariest historical situations any kid in 2020 or in their lifetime is going to have to deal with. And they got through it with minimal issues, with minimal trauma, with minimal concern or anxiety. My kids were shielded from all of that because I basically opened up my heart to them and shared all the things I'm passionate about with them and kind of helped kind of build a cocoon using some of the greatest, most iconic characters and artists of, uh, of all time to help insulate them from all the terror outside our doors. So, you know, it was pretty special. And I, I hope everyone else, by the way, I hope you got through this pandemic uh, unscathed, and that your friends and family are doing okay, and that you found ways to cope. Because if if you if you're like me and you're near a hot spot or you're you dealt with this COVID thing in a way that was you know personal, if it hit close to home, you know, I, I I'd love to hear what you did to kind of stay sane. Because what I did was basically just pour all my energy into my wife and kids at making sure that we were as entertained and excited as possible. You know, whether it was movie nights, whether it was game nights, whether it was family Mario party night on the switch, you know, every night was a different sort of group based activity where we were all just, you know, um, lost in each other and, you know, nothing outside mattered. And honestly, in a, in a, in a, in a weird way, it reminds me of what my abuela has said about her time in, in Cuba. You know, when she, she lived there during the poverty years. I mean, unfortunately for some Cubans or for a lot of Cubans who are still there, it's still poverty time. But when she was raising my mother and my aunt, you know, Elizabeth Pena, the, the actress who's no longer with us, when she was raising them in Cuba, she used to say that, like, the happiest times in her life was when they had nothing. Because they had each other. It forced them to band together and there was so much love and so much support and so much kindness that she never cried for a single moment. She never lamented or pitied or felt any kind of negativity because she had her family. And there was so much love in the house that people knew that, like, okay, we can't rely on bells and whistles and distractions and other things. So we have to be kind to each other and love one another and band together as a team. And, you know, she, she's always sort of instilled the importance of that in me. And I guess it influenced the way I chose to handle uh, this pandemic. And it really felt like that. It felt like the world outside our doors was on fire. Between health concerns, between political concerns, between, you know, just the literal, there's stuff right outside affecting us. And, you know, we had each other. And I used all of my uh, imaginary best friends to help coax them through this. You know, I used Superman. I used Batman. I used Hulk Hogan. I used all my, you know, all the things that got me through being a lonely kid growing up. Uh, I used to keep my kids safe and insulated from the chaos outside our doors. so um that was pretty special. Um, and you know, one of the other things that I kind of want to just talk briefly about, um one of the other reasons I had to go away, and this is relevant because of what happened yesterday on Twitter, is that you see i uh I have an issue. I have an issue where, you know, I'm a people pleaser and, you know, for better or worse, you know, getting people's attention in a positive way means a lot to me. And I found that during the years where I was running Revenge of the Fans and trying to basically kind of like expand and grow a whole empire from all this stuff, I became very reliant on your validation. I became very reliant on social media's validation and in trying to appeal to the widest audience possible and get everyone who encountered me to like me. You know, it's very immature. And honestly, though, you know, I was using Twitter as almost like, you know, a a, a source for dopamine, a source for for serotonin, a source for like, oh, you know, if I'm feeling crappy today, I could go on Twitter and, and tweet out a couple of things that are gonna get a million retweets and everyone's gonna say, oh, this is so great and this is so wonderful and you're so great for telling us this or whatever. You know, the rush of having all these people liking what I have to say, following my show, reading my website, all this sort of stuff, the high of that kind of started to become like a crutch. It became something that I was relying on too much. And I found that like, I was, I was starting to disconnect from my family. And I was starting to sort of recede into my own sort of like, you know, I, I have a sort of depressive nature where I, I, I'm used to sort of isolating myself and getting lost inside my own head with my own fears and concerns and 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 the whole world is against me sort of stuff. And my antidote for that, rather than investing in my family and in my friends and in my hobbies and in the things that bring me joy, suddenly I was just using Twitter and Instagram and all that sort of stuff to try to substitute for actually being happy. I was trying to create synthetic happiness by having a bunch of people I don't know tell me I'm so wonderful that, you know, it became unhealthy. So part of my unplugging from things and deleting Twitter from my phone and just like kind of vanishing there for a while was because I kind of had to rewire my brain. I had to get away from being so worried all the time about what strangers think of me and about what others see when they see me, and trying so hard to be everything to everyone. You know, I kind of lost myself in that because I was chasing the rush of your approval. And not just your, I mean, your approval is kind of important. If you're watching this, if you're listening to this, you know, I do value your input and your feedback on the show and your notes on the things I talk about or your suggestions for the things I talk about. Because you guys, you actually are taking the time to invest in me in a way. You're listening to me. It doesn't, even though it doesn't cost you anything, you know, I've cost you many hours over the years. If you've been following this, I, you know, I've probably cost several days worth of hours, days of your life have gone towards listening to the fanboy podcast. And, you know, I don't, in other words, I don't mind hearing what you guys think. Cause at least you guys know me a little bit. You have a, you have some sense of who I am and what I'm about. But what was getting dangerous was on Twitter, caring about what complete randos thought of me. And when, you know, that's where I kind of had to draw a line and kind of cut Twitter out of the equation and just detach for a while. Because if you're going to be beholden to what mobs of strangers who don't know you think of you, your life is not going to be a very happy one. And that's why I I also like I worry about, you know, the youth, of our, of our culture, of our society, because a lot of kids are very sort of isolated these days, especially because of the pandemic, and their whole life is social media and getting that social media approval, and I wonder, like, you know, if it, it was bad on my psyche, and I was in my mid-30s, and I'd already been through a whole lot of crap in my life, and I still kind of fell victim to how addictive social media can be. And those sort of like, I like to call them like black hole, you know, no echo chamber algorithms, you know, and if I can touch on that for just a minute, thanks for humoring me, by the way. But, you know, I've, I've talked about this before on Twitter, which is an ironic platform for this sort of rant, but it's a cautionary tale. All of these social media platforms, they have algorithms in them that they're they're monitoring your scrolling process. And anything that makes you stop scrolling gets added to your personal profile, whether you liked it or commented it or retweeted on it, doesn't matter. The mere fact that you stopped on it, now they're like, hmm, this is going to, you know, this content, this type of content is going to keep the user glued to their device and our advertisers want all of our users glued to their devices so the algorithm basically starts curating things for you and it's all sort of extremes if you think about it because when you're looking through your your feed what are you most likely to stop on either something that you really love or something that you have a very strong negative opinion about and god forbid If you click on it and now start reading the comments, regardless of whether or not you comment yourself, if you're literally just sort of, um, what's the word? If you're lurking on a thread, all of that lurking counts towards what the, the, the social media platform in question is going to push towards you whenever you come back to the app later, or even as you're scrolling through your feed. You know, your feed is live updating as you're scrolling. It's not sitting there stagnant. Everything you stop on, if you keep scrolling a post or two later, is going to be more from that person or more on that topic. And that's really dangerous because then your social media really does become an echo chamber. And it's not just an echo chamber. And by the way, if if for some reason that confuses any of you, an echo chamber means you're not really getting new information. You're just getting back at you things you already feel strongly about. So things that you tweeted about or followed that you love, you're going to get those. And things that you lurked on or commented against or railed against, that's going to be flagged. And all you're going to get are those two extremes all the time. Because Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter, they're not interested in the things that you're so-so on. They're interested on the things that you spend the bulk of your time on when you're on the app. And ultimately, with enough time, your social media gives you an entirely skewed view on what the world is and on what's really a big deal and what topics are actually being uh, discussed all over the world or you know, or or all over you know your particular fandom. There are times where you're going to think, oh, wow, this topic is something that is hugely important and everyone who's my age and into my kinds of things is talking about it. When in actuality, you might have just got pulled into a little wormhole and now you have a skewed view on the importance of a particular topic or of a particular problem. And it was even affecting the quality of this show, I feel. Because I was getting a distorted sense of which topics really are the hot topics. You know, because when you go on Twitter, you get inundated with the same like two or three things. So you start thinking, oh, these two or three things are the only things that geeks worry about right now. So I'm going to just talk about these all the time. And I feel like the show got very sort of narrow. In scope because of that, because I was trying to cater to social media's version of pop culture. You know, my Twitter's version of what film Twitter is, is what I was going by. But that's not necessarily what, you know, the world cares about. You know, or not even necessarily sometimes what I cared about. You know, I would force myself to like, well, I got to stick to these two or three things because this is all I ever see online. So this is the only thing that's going to get anyone to watch the show or listen to the show. And I feel like it started hurting. The echo chamber algorithm started hurting the quality of the show in a a sort of roundabout indirect way because I wasn't really seeing everything. Suddenly, you know, social media really creates these interesting blinders. And uh, I learned that the hard way. So I really kind of had to pull away. And yesterday, you know, I'm glad to be back because now I have a much healthier outlook on what I want out of social media and what I find acceptable and what I don't. And it's been kind of cool being back in the fray for the last like month or two, I'd say. But like yesterday was a great example of like what can happen when you're, you know, when you're not careful. Because remember that Ray Fisher cyborg thing that I spoke about last week on episode 113, there's, you know, there were some new developments on that front. You know, Ray Fisher did an interview with Forbes and then Josh Whedon responded. You know, it was a kind of a, a kind of a busy day yesterday and I put out a tweet and in that tweet, I said, Almost every person who was cut or had their role shortened for Justice League can be chalked up to the two-hour mandate and the fact that the creatives who came in were asked to streamline the story and not spend so much time setting up future movies. He'll need to prove the racism claim. And what I'm referring to there is in the Forbes interview, Uh, Fisher notes that a lot of actors had their parts cut and they all, you know, unfortunately uh, happened to be people of color. You know, you had Joe Morton, you had Fisher himself, you had uh, the girl playing Iris, you had uh, Ryan Choi. You know, there there were like four or five key characters or not key, but four or five characters who were all cut out of the movie and he was trying to use that to enforce this idea that, you know, Joss Whedon had a racist bent. that The reason he cut it was because he was trying to harm people of color. And that's his, you know, that's his stance. And maybe he has more reason for believing that. He claims to have more evidence and more people willing to come forward with proof of that. But I saw a lot of people were taking that little fact as like proof, proof of racism. And listen, you know, racism inherently is pretty hard to prove, but in this particular case, it's even harder because remember, and this is very, you know, this is not new information. We've known since this film was originally in production that it was going to be streamlined, that you know, it, it was once going to be a four hour movie that was setting up all these other movies. Prior to that, it was going to be two movies. You know, the, the scale of this thing was pretty gigantic. And when Whedon and Johns and Berg and, you know, everyone who came on, when everyone who was brought on to fix it, quote unquote, was brought on, it was with the mandate that we need to get this thing to two hours maximum. So if you're streamlining a movie, you're going to cut characters that don't affect, you know, that, 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 that will require some kind of introduction and that are going to have a lot of importance later on you're going to cut that because especially you're not even worried about what's coming later on remember when Justice League came out there was a lot of uncertainty about what the future would hold whether or not there was going to be a cyborg movie whether or not they were going to continue with Henry Cavill Superman whether or not Ben Affleck would ever don the cowl again I mean there was a lot of stuff that was up in the air So when they were cutting that movie down, you know, you got to cut down things that don't help. You already have seven superheroes, one of which is dead, who you have to resurrect within those two hours. You have a villain or two that you have to develop. I mean, at this point, they cut it down to Steppenwolf. But like, you know, you have a villain plot and all that sort of stuff to set up. Two hours is is not a lot of time for seven superheroes and villains in a sort of big, you know, especially if you're going big. You know, this isn't like when Bryan Singer did the first X-Men movie where a lot of people point out like, you know, that had a big team of people in it. You know, why does everyone feel like Justice League needed more time or needed more solo movies? You know, that's an old conversation at this point. But this wasn't supposed to be just a movie about some average team or, you know, any old superhero team. This was the Justice League. So the focus needs to be on the Justice League, not getting us into all of these peripheral characters. And specifically, within the Justice League, we've already focused a lot of attention on Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. So right now, those are like, you know, the Trinity should be getting a ton of your focus and screen time. And then... Aquaman was already filming so they kind of had to keep his stuff in there and they you know they felt like the flash could be something big for them in the future so they kept all the flash stuff in there because remember at that point they were already talking about doing a flashpoint movie and all that sort of stuff so they kind of knew you know no matter what kind of shape the flash movie takes. You know, we got to build him up a little bit. So that right there is four characters that you're going to want to let shine in this movie and give them lots of moments to stand out because they're either they've already been invested upon. So the audience is into them already or in the very immediate future, you're making movies about them. So you need the crowd to invest in them some more. And listen, you know, the I've been talking about Cyborg as sort of an odd fit for the Justice League for like four or five years since my original podcast on Latino Review on LRM when we were called Los Fanboys. You know, I remember thinking, like, Cyborg just seems like the odd man out. When I think of the Justice League, you know, that other spot should go towards Green Lantern or, you know, Martian Manhunter. You know, to me, Cyborg was like a weird inclusion. And I know that in the comics, Jeff Johns brought him to the Justice League. But to me, he always seemed like kind of like the odd person out. So if you're and I feel like I'm not alone in that, you know, so when they were crafting Justice League, totally unsure of what the future was going to hold and whether or not each of these characters was going to get a solo movie or if any of the original plans were going to hold true and you're trying to chop it down to two hours, you're going to cut a bunch of people. That's just the nature of it. And does it suck that a lot of them happen to be minorities or people of color? Sure. And listen, if if we can prove that it was done because they, you know, Whedon and company hate people of color, if you can prove that in some way, then, you know, bring it on. Let me know what your smoking gun is. Let me know, you know, give me witnesses who heard specific things. You know, let me know. Because just on its surface, on the just looking at it, if you're trying to make if you're trying to take a four-hour movie and chop it down to two and simplify the story and cut away the connective tissue for other films and keep the focus more on just these characters beating this villain at this time, a lot of characters are going to get cut, you know? It's just it's just the nature of it. And none of these characters were had been seen before. So why kind of like waste Iris West's debut... In a quick little thing, when you can give Iris West a full arc with Barry in his Flash movie. Why go through that insane, dark, tumultuous cyborg origin story if we can just save that for his movie? Right now, this movie has to be about this team beating Steppenwolf, and we have to bring Superman back from the dead in the process. They had a lot of ground to cover if they were trying to keep this under two hours. And then some people took issue with, you know, well, how is it that I can justify them cutting those characters, but not that Russian family that Joss Whedon added into the mix? I'd like to talk about that for just a second, because if we were to add up every scene that that Russian family appeared in, I think it would amount to about two minutes of screen time. And a lot of people think like, oh, it's so random. It served no purpose. Why did didn't waste time on that when he could have given us Darkseid? Or why did he waste time on that when he could have, you know, given us the, the full cyborg origin? And it's like you couldn't do all of that in just two or three minutes. You know, the two or three minutes he gave the Russian family would not have been time to properly introduce and develop all of those things, especially if those things didn't really feed into how the film ends. And if you're not building towards the eventual clash with Darkseid, a lot of that stuff that Snyder was building towards is kind of unnecessary, you know, because the plan changed. It's nothing personal, just the plan changed. So... When we're talking about the Russian family, you know, they did serve a purpose. And I wasn't being condescending when I said this in a reply later. A lot of people kind of missed it. And I could understand, you know, that there are people who don't necessarily see the value in this. But something that I've been saying for years, going even before he was involved with Justice League, is that I appreciate the way Joss Whedon uh, understands the value of having civilians and humans to care about. Humans with skin in the game who are really, you know, flesh and blood characters who could die at the hands of all these demigods and and all of these world-destroying villains that come into these comic book movies. You got to have civilians, humans on the ground that you as an audience member are rooting for. You know, and there's a quote from from Joss Whedon, if if, if you'll humor me, if you're one of the people who hates him already, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but just this will explain why the Russian family was in there. And the funny thing is, this quote isn't even from Justice League. It's from his time on the Avengers, but it's relevant because it shows you where his priorities are as a filmmaker. So in an old interview, he said, and this is about the, uh, the Avengers. He said, I shot probably three days in both films tracking civilians because I was like, these guys have superpowers. They're the Avengers. Nobody's going to worry about them. The audience is going to want to know these civilians better. Um, and then he went on to say, you know, but what it's like for the people on the ground—that's always going to be important to me. Like, there's Hawkeye helping people off the bus. You have to have somebody who works at ground level who's taking care of the smaller stuff. And listen, for me as a film fan, that works. You know, I I, I see the value in that, and it's actually not a new concept. I brought this up actually maybe two years ago. But if you go back to some of the earliest forms of theater in Greek theater, thousands of years ago, they would include what they would call like the Greek chorus to the plays where there's the main overarching story. There's what the main characters are saying. But then every once in a while, the Greek chorus, which basically symbolizes what you know, the entire society is, all the people in that given story, how they're feeling about what's going on. Their, you know, their vantage point and their summary of what's going on is important because then it shows you how the stakes of this story are affecting everyone in that world. And in modern filmmaking, having, you know, showing us how the audience, yeah, showing us how the people who live in that world are feeling about what's going on around them is a great way to get the viewer to to invest and to know how to feel and to know you know put yourself there it's not just about watching the unstoppable hero and the unstoppable villain beat the crap out of each other it's about being invested in that world and worried about all the people in that world so when he added that russian family and i totally got it it was his way to try to bring some humanity to that area where the third act battle was going to take place you know, because he was setting that up all along that, that that crazy domed base, that headquarters that Steppenwolf was building up was being built in this like isolated, desolated part of Russia where there's no cell service. Remember, you know, he was trying to set up that we're going to end up in this scary, mainly like hollowed out, empty industrial village. But the thing is, if you do that, then no one really cares about the carnage that's happening in that area. You got to have some people around for the audience to go, like, oh my God, I hope they're okay. You know, so in those two or three minutes, he established that family being out there. There were a couple of little things that kind of like teased sort of what the parademons are about and and how this family feels towards them. And, you know, just there was a purpose, whether or not you saw it, whether or not it moved the needle for you. The Russian family wasn't just this like, I'm just going to randomly out of this family and no it served a purpose to the overall story by giving us some human flesh and blood people there on the ground who could be very impacted by what Steppenwolf is doing and uh, you know that's just when I think about what happened yesterday it reminds me why I left Twitter to begin with Because people, you know, after I tweeted out what I said, which really wasn't that inflammatory, I'm literally, I'm going to read it to you one more time. Okay. All I said was almost every person who was cut or had their role shortened for Justice League can be chalked up to the two hour mandate and the fact that the creatives who came in were asked to streamline the story and not spend so much time setting up future movies. He'll need to prove the racism claim. That's all I said. I'm just pointing out that if you're going to try to prove racism, merely saying these characters were cut is not going to do it because most of the characters that he mentioned don't really help that particular story to be told. They're extra things. They're there to help get you invested in future solo movies, or they're there to get you to see what would have been the next justice league movie. They're not there to help you with this story, which is what, you know, which is what Whedon was trying to do. But, that's all I said. That's all I said. I didn't say I was against Fisher. I didn't say that Whedon is a hero. I was just pointing that simple fact out. And people came for me. People came for me for the rest of the day. I think I tweeted that out at like four o'clock. And at like, as of like t- five minutes ago, people are still quote tweeting it and trying to like say like, I mean, I was called racist. I was called racist a Hispanic man in New York City who uh, votes for Bernie Sanders and is about as progressive as you can get, I was called a racist because I said that. You know, and and that's, that's kind of Twitter in a nutshell. No one, like, discerns anything. No one actually goes and sees, well, what kind of a person is this? They just go and they, oh, I saw in these 240 characters, I've decided what kind of person you are. You know, And it's completely irrational. It's complete insanity. But there was a time where I felt beholden to that. There was a time where something like last night would have had me in uh, in some sort of panic for the rest of the night, wondering, like, should I retract what I said? Should I delete the tweet? Should I apologize to everyone for what I said? What if this is going to impact how many people follow me or watch my show or go to my site? Like, there was a time where that stuff would have like kept me up all night. But instead, now I just look at it for what it is. And that's not much. But I bring all this up because I kind of want to just explain to some of you where I disappeared to for a while and the kind of energy I had to get away from and the value in doing that. Because it allowed me to bring all of my fanboy energy here to home and make my kids and my family very happy during very dark days. And it also gave me the emotional maturity to be able to handle all of the cruel, vindictive, mean, insane, immature assumptions and accusations that were levied at me yesterday over my attempt to just diplomatically point out that... Cutting those characters doesn't necessarily prove anything. Um, But okay, so let's see. Getting low on time here. But something... Oh, in terms of the uh, Man of Steel, a bunch of you have been asking me about, you know, how the kids reacted to Man of Steel because a lot of you were very moved and impacted by that story I shared two weeks ago of when I introduced my kids to Superman the movie. Well, the chronology, everything's kind of gone haywire, because these last couple of Fridays didn't go the way I thought they were going to go, because last week was my wife's birthday, so for movie night, the kids weren't involved. (laughs) For movie night last Friday, our weekly tradition, the kids were put to bed, so me and my wife and our friend David, who was going to be fester the next day, uh, could watch Borat 2. So that was our movie night last week, so the kids didn't get to watch Man of Steel. And then this week, we snuck in a bonus movie night, but it was for Halloween-related stuff. We showed them Beetlejuice. And then the next night, we showed them once uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, Halloween-themed things. And then for tonight, which is Friday, we're not going to get to have a movie night either because we're going to drive to Jersey to drive through this, like, outdoor jack-o'-lantern exhibit. So no movie night tonight either. So unfortunately... For those of you who are waiting to hear what my kids thought of Man of Steel, uh, it's going to take a little bit longer, but I will keep you posted on that. Um, I'm going to leave you on just a quick sort of breakdown on how they reacted to something else. So Star Wars was a fascinating ride for my kids because they saw the original trilogy Uh, Four years ago. So let's see, four years ago, my son was two and my daughter was five. And, you know, so their memories are at best hazy. Like, I mean, my son barely remembers any of it, of the original trilogy. And my daughter only really remembers like the core most iconic things, which is Darth Vader, that he's the father of Luke. And, you know, that Han Solo and Princess Leia had a love story. Oh, and she liked the droids and Chewbacca, you know, but like she under, she remembers those core key staples, but she doesn't remember really anything else about the stories. So when the the pandemic hit and we decided we're going to do a rewatch of Star Wars, we decided this time it would be interesting to go chronologically from episode one all the way through nine to tell it sort of that way. Because listen, my daughter had already lived through the, uh, Luke, I am your father. So I was curious, like, let's see how she goes, how she deals with the, you know, when Anakin becomes Darth Vader, because she didn't remember that Darth Vader's real name was Anakin. It had been so many years and it's not a, a detail that we would, you know, harp upon in the years since. So she didn't know that Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. She knows that the Skywalkers in general are important to Star Wars, but she didn't make that connection. So it was amazing. So f- through the first two episodes of Star, you know, th- through Attack of No, through The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, my daughter is like basically falling in love with Anakin Skywalker and getting invested in him and getting to like love the 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 romance between Anakin and Padme. And, you know, she was getting all hooked into that. While my son, who has been restless in the past for other kinds of Star Wars things I've put on, he was really into it too. So it goes to show you, by the way, that George Lucas wasn't crazy when he said that he was making that prequel with little kids in mind. My little kids really dug it. Who knew? I didn't care for the Phantom Menace. And the attack of the clones put me to sleep. But my kids loved it. And my daughter, so... She she we came into Revenge of the Sith with her being so like into the love story and the fact that Anakin and Padme had just gotten married at the end of 2 and you know she's all hooked and she hasn't made the connection yet and anytime anyone around us who would you heard that we were watching Star Wars would mention anything I'd be like don't say anything she hasn't figured it out yet <laughs> I didn't even say it to her. I didn't want her to know that there was something to figure out. But I I guarded her from anyone potentially spoiling it. So when we get to Revenge of the Sith and all of a sudden Emperor Palpatine calls Anakin Lord Vader. My daughter's mind was blown. I took a picture of it. She couldn't believe that this this person that she's watched grow from being the little boy in The Phantom Menace through these three movies into being this man who has this dark nature but who she thought was ultimately the hero of the story. That guy is Darth Vader. And it broke her. It was amazing. It it, It was a fatherhood fanboy experience like none other to see her kind of go through that roller coaster ride. And you know, so we we did that and then we actually stopped in between episodes 3 and 4 to see solo a Star Wars story. Which was really cool because now that they had seen The Phantom Menace, when they saw Darth Maul at the end, it was huge. It was a big deal. You know, they were like, oh my god. My son was obsessed with the two-sided lightsaber and with Darth Maul with that crazy looking face. Like, he wants to see more Darth Maul. So, I know I need to get him into that uh, Clone Wars animated series, right? Because I'm pretty sure there's more Darth Maul in that. But, um... So yeah, we did Solo. We decided to skip Rogue One because we decided it's just a little too grown up. It's not really like a movie that's filled with color and adventure for the kids and all the heroes, you know, spoiler alert, die at the end. We're like, it's just too much. We'll show that to them when they're a little older. But we went from episode three to Solo to episode four. And then finally... Two weeks ago, we saw the rise of Skywalker and we concluded the Star Wars saga once and for all. And it was very rewarding. It was very rewarding. I got to tell you, they really loved it. My wife really loved it. Yeah, you know, me. Of course, I have. I always have a different experience than them because I am a geek and a nerd, and I know all the backstories and I know all the different production troubles that these movies went on, and you know the the scripts that were tone out, uh, thrown out, and the f- directors that were fired. You know, so I experience it a little differently than they do. But them, I got to tell you, ignorance is bliss because they don't know any of like you know what other people thought of anything. They don't know any kind of backstory or back behind the scenes turmoil on any of this stuff. And they watched, what is that, 10 Star Wars movies and had a great time throughout and went on the whole roller coaster ride of what each of those films you know added to the mythos. So that was tremendously rewarding. And uh you know, I had so much fun with it at the beginning of each episode, you know, as part of the uh as part of the tradition with the lights out and the shades closed and the sound and the the Bose soundbar up way too loud. Uh, yeah. I would also read the opening crawl in the style of those like old 19, you know, thirties and forties serials that got George Lucas to want to make a star Wars movie. You know, I would read it episode one, the rebellion is blah, 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 blah. And now only the nefarious yada, yada, you know, and, uh, it was just fun. It, it was such an experience in our home and a special thing that if you're if you're uh if you're a geek like me and you have a family, I strongly encourage you just check it out. Just try to like put together some epic screenings of like the best geek movies ever. The best, you know, fanboy, nerdy. You know, uh, Comic Con esque projects. You know, take out, you know, pick the best ones and make special screenings for them, and make them feel special. Make them feel as big to you as they were when you were little, and the kids are gonna feel that. It, it's like contagious. So, um, I will keep you posted on when we get to Man of Steel though we there might be a detour or two along the way because part of what i like to do also is like foreshadow things because like for example we want to watch the goonies we've been meaning to introduce them to the goonies for a while and i purposely said let's wait until after they've watched the christopher reeve superman movies why is that because richard donner directed The Goonies and I know that my my daughter will find that interesting when I throw in that little factoid cuz she you know, I told you she's into that sort of stuff but even beyond that in the third act of that movie when the deformed guy rips his shirt open and has the superman s and we hear the john williams that my kids are going to lose their minds and that wouldn't have happened without first showing them the reeve donner superman so yeah, there's like a method to my madness so we've got goonies in there which you know we might get to before man of steel and even this might sound very random but even Enola Holmes is an option right now on, on Netflix because my daughter loves spies and detectives and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I, I have a feeling that this movie, which is geared towards, you know, uh, you know youth you know, young girls, is that, that's the impression I get, uh, I think she would really love Enola Holmes. And more importantly, Henry Cavill plays Sherlock in that movie. So I'd love for her to get to know Henry that way. And then when Man of Steel starts, she's going to have that, oh, that's Sherlock. That's that guy. She's already going to have a connection, a relationship with him just from Enola Holmes. So I'm going to see how I navigate this, how many movies it takes us to get to Man of Steel. But it's going to be within the next two or three weeks. So I will let you know when that happens. But I'm very excited for it. Um... And, you know, I was going to talk a little more about wrestling, but now I'm out of time. So I'm sorry for teasing earlier in the episode that there might be some more wrestling chatter later, but uh, I'm going to have to save that. Or I might even make it its own video because I always find that like when I talk wrestling, nobody responds. I have like three friends. I have three listeners, three, you know, friends online who actually engage me. On wrestling talk. So I'm always a little bit hesitant to bring it up here on the show because I feel like it's sort of a niche entertainment and I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about something that's going to alienate like 95% of you. So, you know, I've got topics. I've got things I want to discuss about how AEW celebrated its one-year anniversary recently and what I think is going on with wrestling in the age of COVID and presenting wrestling without having an audience. Yeah, I have plenty I can discuss. But A, there's not really time to do it here. And B, I'm not sure enough of you would care enough about it for me to use up some valuable real estate here on the fanboy discussing it. So I maybe I'll make like a secondary, like, a you know, like just a, a 20 minute episode in a couple of days. that's just dedicated to my wrestling mark ranting. But uh, that's my time for now. I'm going to ask you if you are enjoying this resurgence of the show. If you're digging the YouTube version of it, if you're digging just, you know, me uh, reinvesting in all of this stuff, if you're digging it, please go to the uh, Apple Podcasts app and leave me a review. A five-star review would really help um, just to help spread the word because I'm back. I'm going to be back every week. And uh, thank you to those of you who've welcomed me back with open arms and who know who I really am, or at least... You have somewhat of an understanding of me and don't rely on weird social media snap judgments to uh, write me off because uh, without you guys, I wouldn't be doing this show. So thank you. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.